and we begin to to ask God to reveal himself to us that we might truly join with the angels as we say holy, holy, holy. This morning we are reading from 1 Corinthians and for those of you who wonder if the passage is shorter, does that mean the sermon is shorter? The answer is yes. But this is the word of God. Love is patient. This is the word of God. You may be seated. <clears throat> For those of you who have a watch, uh, I do want you to know that this transition has been emotional for Cindy and I as well as we go through this time of thinking about ending our time of ministry with you. Uh, it is an emotional time for us because after being here 29 years, um, there are a lot of things that have happened in our life in this church. And God has taught us and shown us in so many ways that, that he is a God who is at work in ways that we cannot always understand. And I want you to contemplate that because this morning as we think about God and we think about the text this morning that love is patient, it's a very powerful statement to say that love is patient and kind. And it goes on, Paul says. And the most amazing thing is that he says it in this context. By the way, um, speaking of love, we need to love the Upwalk family, George Upwalk, who was married to Nell. Nell passed away on a tragic accident on a lawnmower. And we're going to be celebrating the promise of the resurrection on her behalf Saturday the 23rd here in this church at 3 o'clock. We're going to have a memorial service for Nell's life here. Um, I've asked Logan to preach on the resurrection that afternoon. Uh, I can't wait to be reminded of the promises we have in Jesus Christ. Tremendous, tremendous. I don't know if you know the name, Robertson Mc, McGilkin. <laughs> a good Scottish name, isn't it? Robert McGilkin. Do you know that name? Probably not. He's a graduate of Columbia Bible College in Columbia, South Carolina, which is now called Columbia International University. He's also a graduate of Fuller Theological Seminary on the West Coast, which is an evangelical the, uh, Reformed theological seminary as well. But in, in having those degrees, he was asked to be the headmaster of what became the Christian school that influences still today the city of Columbia, South Carolina, called the Ben, ben Lippin School. That would be enough for a, a vocation, for a, a way of spending your life influencing others. But he felt a call to plant churches of all places in Japan. And so he and his wife, uh, Merle, went there and served the Lord by reaching out to a totally different culture that he had never known or experienced before. After he finished that time in Japan serving as a church planter, he returned to Columbia, South Carolina, as the board there sought him out to become the president of what is now today Columbia International University. It's a very influential Christian school. It's been sending people all around the world to all places and educating people in the church on, on what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And this one man, Robertson McGilkin, was instrumental in expanding the influence of that school 
until until the year 1988 when his wife was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. He went and talked with the board chairman, John Oliver, asking, maybe I should resign. And John said, I, I talked him out of it. But a year later, Muriel had, had, in, had, I guess she had succumbed to this disease in such measure that she began to endanger her own life and the life of her family. And so it was at that point that Robertson decided he needed to retire. He resigned as the president of that institution and spent the rest of his life devoting to the care of his wife until God took her home. But you know what he's known for? He was in an airport, and he and his wife were traveling to see family, and they were waiting on an airplane. And she had reached the point of dementia where she was sitting there, and every once in a while, just like those who face this, she would get up and walk away. And, and it's not unusual for people who deal with this to walk away looking for home. And so she would, in the middle of the airport, just get up and walk away. And, and sometimes he would be distracted by something, and he suddenly realized she was gone. And so he would run after her and then grab her by the hand and comfort her and calm her and take her time in, in just soothing her spirit and bringing her back, saying, this is where we need to be right now. And it didn't just happen once. It happened again and again and again again until I would probably just grab her by the neck and choke her to death. But Robertson, every time, went to her and patiently grabbed her and took her back to where she needed to be. The woman who saw this said to herself, oh, if God would let me have And you know the glory of this morning? That is the kind of love that God has given you. Because in your struggles with your sin, God has never done anything more than be patient with you. And so when, when we hear these words, love is patient, it's one of those reminders to us that the importance of one word in the passage can make a huge difference in the way we live our lives. You begin to say, well, then, then how are we to understand this? Well, please first note that, that when we say love is patient and kind, it's a clause. They go together. And these two are coupled like bookends for a reason. And the reason you'll find the second part of this, kind, you, you have to come back next Sunday to understand it. <laughs> I, I'm just not going not gonna to blind you. I, I can't preach on kindness this morning because if I preach on patience, you're going to start looking at your watch. Because when we say love is patient, we're talking about one of two halves or one of two sides of God's attitude toward all of us. And that is that he is patient and kind. And what I mean by that more than anything else is that patience, now get this, patience is love's necessary passive work. Kindness is the active work of, of, of love. Patience is the passive work 
of love. Now, I say work because many people look to this chapter, of chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, and they say, okay, what is love? You know, what is love anyway? That's a song that people sing. And, and when you look at this, this, this description is not an adjective. It's a summation of activity. And so love has action. It has tangible, seeable ways that you can know whether you are loved or not. And so when we talk about patience this morning, we're talking about God's passive work on your behalf. How so? Kindness is love's necessary active work. In other words, it's an activity that God does actively toward us, but this in the passive is that God does something that he would do but chooses not to. And what is that about? Well, let's look at the word patience. What does he mean when he says love is patient? Well, that word in the Greek, interestingly enough, is makrothenio. Say that 3,000 times fast. Macrothenio. Well, what, is, what does that mean? Well, it's a word in the Greek that basically is two words that have been put together. We do that in English as well. Macros meaning long in time or extended space. Macros, we think of macroeconomics. Do you, you remember that class? Macroeconomics? Yeah. Well, that's what that is. It's long. It, it deals with a, an expansion. And, and the last part of that word is thumos, which means it denotes either a passive longing or a wrath. Depending on the context, it can mean one of those two things. They seem at, at, sent, at first sense at opposite each other. Longing Longing, passionate longing, and wrath. But if you know anything about dating and you remember when you liked someone and they didn't like you and you passionately wanted to be with them, what happened? Well, you got angry because they didn't love you. Well, that's how God is toward you. And the most amazing thing is that God says that his love for you is so great that he longs, longs for you to return his love with your love. And so when we think love is patient, it, it's a very powerful beginning to understand this powerful message that it can mean to be patient. We can translate it that way, that we are to be patient or to have patience. But the best thing about this word, and when we look at it, is it defies the modern English definitions. If you go to a dictionary and you look up what is patience, it's bearing pains or trials calmly and without complaint. Now, immediately, I think doormat, right? Being a doormat, just being walked over. We're going to be patient, right? Goes on to say in the modern English translation, or this word, or definition, is the manifesting forbearance under provocation or strain. I don't know who wrote that one, but that sounded wordy, didn't it? How about this one? It's not hasty or impetuous. It doesn't rush in. Another is it's steadfast despite opposition, difficulty, or adversity. Finally, another definition, an English definition is it is able or willing to bear some wrong. None of those do justice to what's being spoken here. They may give an inkling of it, 
But here's the most joyous word that you can think of about when it says love is patient. And that is long-suffering. Long-tempered. The, the G- King James Version translates this, that love is, love suffereth long. What does that mean? Well, it holds back anger and wrath toward others. It holds back anger or wrath from others. And so when Paul writes to the Corinthians, who have just told us in chapter 1 of Corinthians that they're fighting about who's the greatest in the church. Some say, I follow Paul. Some say, I follow Apollos. Some say, I follow Jesus. And the church is fragmented because they're not patient with each other. I mean, I I dare say when you and I think about this, it'd be very easy to start thinking that somehow ministry is tied to an individual or personality. I learned a long time ago when I served as the associate pastor at First Presbyterian Church, they had what they called the heritage room. And by the way, First Church in Statesville preceded this church. It was already planted before this church ever was in in 1760. Thank you. (laughs) And as I'd walk through that room and look at the pictures, I was looking at all the pastors who had served in that church. And let me tell you, there were a lot of them. You go into the session house and you look at the pastors that served in this church, on the average, most of them stayed about 14 years. There were some who stayed smaller. There were others who stayed longer. Why do I tell you all this? When I looked at those pictures, one of the things that struck me is that the church is not built on anyone else but who? Jesus Christ and the moment you allow anyone any person to define what the church is or what the church does you commit idolatry I believe that the church in America is in disarray it is falling apart it is losing its influence because we have elevated Christianity following certain people instead of following Jesus. There are more people who are concerned about hearing uh, sermons from infamous pastors on radio than reading the word of God themselves. Why? Because they're impatient. They want someone else to feed them. They don't want to feed themselves. Let me tell you, in this church, I've told the elders continually that if anyone ever gets in this pulpit and begins to preach something that doesn't come from the word of God, they are required by the Lord Jesus Christ to stand up, push the guy off this stage and say, we're closing with a hymn, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Why? Because there's no one person that we are to follow except Jesus Christ. Well, the problem in the Corinthian church was that they had splintered in such ways that they had lost the ability to be long-tempered. I think it's kind of interesting that we don't have that word in the English anymore. We know what short-tempered is, don't you? All you got to do is drive down I-77. You see it all over the place. 
But never do you hear the, the, the characteristic long-tempered anymore. Why? Because we as a culture have believed that the only way to move people and influence them is to attack them, is to belittle them. And we're going to live through tremendously difficult times next year during this election. If you believe anything, you better second guess what you believe because we're not sure who's telling us the truth anymore. My daughter came to me one day and said, Dad, where in God's name do you get the news? And I said, I have to listen to about 20 different places. And none of you would agree with any of the places I listen to because they're both on the far left and the far right. Why do I do that? Because I'm really trying to understand the truth. And to do that, you have to have patience. You have to be long-suffering. You can't take the words of someone who is on, a tele on television at night for 30 minutes and suddenly believe they know everything in the world. They don't. The problem in the Corinthian church was they said to themselves, well, I know Jesus, so I know what's right. Therefore, if you don't agree with me, you're wrong. That's not patience, is it? My wife and I, as we've gone through this transition with you, we're beginning to notice this in our house. I, I get a little antsy, and so I'll start picking at her. I kind of impatient with my life. I think about my life and the, the things I've done with it and how the sermons I've preached, and sometimes I just want to come and say, thank you for letting me preach. I'm so sorry they weren't as good as you hoped they were. But every once in a while, we'll pick, I'll pick at my wife, and I'll pick at her because I'm restless inside. Why? Because I don't have patience. Neither do you. In fact, if you were to describe the church, the church is filled with people who are impatient, learning how to be patient with one another. And if you've already reached that, you, you probably need to go down to the church down the street. But if you want to learn how to be patient, then you're in the right place. Why do I say all this? It's important that you begin to understand that Paul is dressing a church that is so divided, so conflicted, that they are arguing about the Lord's Supper. They're arguing about baptism. They even have, get this, they even have immorality in their church being embraced and accepted. Such immorality that wasn't even practiced by the Romans who were not Christians around them. And in that midst of that, Paul writes to them and he says, if you want to know a higher way, as Logan led us through the word last week, if you want to know the better way, understand these words. I can have thousands of gifts that God has given me, but if I do not have love, I am nothing. Hmm. Nothing. I've never talked to anybody on a deathbed who's complained that they didn't make enough money. I've never talked to anyone on a deathbed who said, I wish I would have spent more time at work or had a better yard that was greener and, and more lush. I, I've never talked to anyone who has told me anything more than they said, I wish I would have lived more gracefully with other people. I wish I would have been more forgiving. I wish I would have been more loving. 
I wish I would have been more patient. Why is that? Because you were created in the image of God. And God is love. Hmm. Pretty powerful, isn't it? You say, well, Robert, that's great. I'm supposed to be a doormat. No, 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 no. You misunderstand. Being patient is not being a doormat. It is not choosing to be so right that you blunder in and hurt others. No, in fact, when you look at this word, it begins to become powerful in that when Paul writes and says love is patient, he is trying to describe a quality that recognizes when the time is right to bring up a subject and to talk about it with others for their welfare. Not to cut them, not to belittle them, not to make them feel inferior, but to look for that opportunity that God gives for you to go to another person and say, I've noticed this and I want you to know I'm praying for you and more importantly, are you ready to talk about it? I want you to know that kind of thing is needful in our days because there is no one here that doesn't have scars from their parents, from their family backgrounds or from their experiences in life. And God has given you the church through which you might understand God's grace and hopefully, now this is the this is the goal, that in the church you would find a group, a community where you would be loved unconditionally regardless of what has happened to you or the choices you have made. I was talking with someone years ago about joining the church and they had been raised in a non-church background and they would come and look at you and they'd say, oh, the, you, you, the people in center are so wonderful. They're so godly. They love Jesus so much. And I said, well, why don't you join us? And they said, no, I, I just can't do that. I, just, I was dumbfounded. And I said, why? And they said, because if they knew what I'd done with my life, they wouldn't accept me. And I thought, wow, if you'd known what I'd done with my life, you wouldn't accept me either, would you? No. No. When Paul writes and says, look, love is patient, he's not saying that we're to be doormats. We're to look for the right time to help and encourage others for their welfare, for the betterment of their life. I had a mother who I loved dearly, but she was not patient. She was manipulative. And when she wanted something done, she would come to you and say in a very manipulative way, I would like to tell you something because I've seen this in you and I know you better than anyone. And she would begin to launch into things. Finally, I, I grew up enough to realize she didn't know everything. That's barging in. Patience is accepting and loving people where they are. In fact, one of the early church fathers said, Real love in the church is where we go and take people who don't know who Christ is and take them by the hand and lead them into the presence of the Lord. That takes patience. Well, all of that to say, Paul writes this passage because it was a contrast to what the church was in the day that he lived in Corinth. They were too ready to jump the gun 
both in their assumptions about who Paul was and in their assumptions of who each other were, they were already predisposed to condemn and to isolate each other out of fear or insecurity or a sense of self-justification. And in so doing, they were destroying the church. And I'm going to ask you this morning, are you building up this church or destroying it? When the scriptures say, when the scriptures say that God is love, and, and I've got to put my glasses on because I realize I can't see the screen up there. When the scriptures say that God is love, he talks about this whole business of the fact that we are called to be people who endeavor to be patient with one another. And what that means more than anything else is how we are to mirror who God is. If you go to Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 through 7, you read these verses, which are given through Moses. And Moses writes, and he records them for us, and as God passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassion and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and, for, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Don't we like that? We love that, don't we? But there's another part that we, we oftentimes think is true, but we're fearful of, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who love him. What, what is he saying? Well, he's saying very clearly that God is a patient God, but he's a God who's no fool. You see, God's patience is meant to bring you to a repentance. God's patience with you is not to allow you to continue your life of sin and continue in such a way that you go down the path of destruction. God's patience or his slowness to anger is for the purpose that you and I might begin to realize that they have great implications for how we live. That if we are going to take seriously what it means to be the church, if we're going to take seriously what it means to follow Jesus Christ, that it means you're going to have to be patient with each other. You, you know one of the first things that I did in this church that still reverberates in my mind? We had, we had come to this church in 1994, and the building next door was, was a, a building that was used for children's ministry back in the 1960s. It had orange paint and lime paint and yellow paint and had shag carpet in the nursery. And everyone who was here said, you know, that's a great building. We love that building. And they did. But when they asked the question, well, why, why don't young people want to come to our church? And I said, well, it could be because there's shag carpet in the nursery. And they said, what do you mean by that? I said, well, it tends to trap germs, and no one wants their children lying on the floor with germy carpet. Now, they couldn't understand that, y'all. In all honesty, they couldn't understand that because most of the people I was preaching to at that day had 13 kids in their family at one time. And in those days, you just put the kids wherever they fell, <laughs> right? And so in that day, the building met the needs of the outreach to the community. 
And so we started a program where we said we need to think about updating our building. And the, the congregation seized onto that with such excitement you wouldn't believe. They renovated this building. We renovated this building. I'll never forget this. Gene Norris, a painter, came in, and there were huge fissure cracks in this hair, horsehair plaster. Huge cracks in this horsehair plaster. It looked like the ceiling was going to fall down. And we, 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 we talked about it in the session and said, yep, let's, let's get somebody in and talk about how we can fix this. And so Gene Norris, of all things, came, and he put some special God-blessed putty up there. I'm not sure what it was. Because I asked Gene, I said, how long do you think that putty will last? And he said, oh, it probably lasts about 10 years. It's been 30. And I, 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 every time I see Gene, I said, I don't know what it was you used, but I'm glad God blessed it because there's not been another crack in this whole place. Look at this. And you look at this and you think, wow. And then the congregation said, you know, maybe we should... Maybe we should think about changing out the carpet. Now, I don't know why. It was just threadbare. It was good carpet in the days that they brought. But it had gotten to the point where it was worn out. And someone said, well, why don't we ask the deacons to go ahead and trade that out? And, and sure enough, they did. Well, here's the mistake I made, y'all. When they put the carpet down, we put all the pews back, and we went, oh, it was so beautiful. The place of worship was so beautiful. And before they put that center board back, I asked the, the people, I said, would you mind not putting that back in until next week? I'd like for our congregation to worship without the center board in place just one Sunday. You would have thought the devil <laughs> had ascended to the pulpit that Sunday because every one of the members of the church had told one another that the pastor was taking out the center board. And it, it went like wildfire, y'all. Have you ever seen wildfire? It was all over the place. And so I came in to preach that Sunday morning, and I had people like this sitting in the pew just looking at me. And I thought, what in the world is going on? And finally, Doug Dalton... God bless him, he's in heaven, stood up and said, Pastor, we're just a little concerned that you might not allow the center board to be put back into the pew. And I said, Doug, that was never my intention. Where in the world did that come from? And everyone's just kind of had a sigh of relief. <sighs> you know what happened? People were fearful of change. And they weren't patient and loving. That never happens in any other church, by the way, does it? The implications are important to you. Why? Because in this transition that we're going through, I don't know if you've noticed, but Logan is not me. Have you noticed that? He has hair. I don't. That, that's one point, right? He preaches powerfully wonderful sermons that are not like my sermons. But they're the word of God. He has four children. I was lucky to have one. And if you have more than one, I've always heard one takes up all your time. You might as well have 11 more because you have no other time to give. 
And so for you to expect that Logan is going to pastor the way I pastored is insane because he can't do it. In fact, do you know who the ministers are of the church? You are. His calling is to preach God's word and to administer the sacraments. You're the ones that should be going out and sharing the gospel and bringing people to Christ. I'll never forget how one person came and grabbed me and said, I want you to come with me. And I said, what do you want me to do? He said, I want you to come tell this woman about Jesus. And I thought to myself, why don't you tell her about Jesus? That's why we come here, so you learn how to do that. The implications are important, my friends. If love is patient, then you and I have to begin to think about how to be patient with each other when someone doesn't do what I want them to do. John puts it this way. He records Jesus' words. Now, this is, this is startling. This, this should cause you to tremble with fear. Because John records for us Jesus' words. He says, a new commandment I give to you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Okay, that's enough. It's the Lord's command. Right? Any doubts? It's not our opinion. It's the Lord's command, right? But listen to the next verse. By this, everyone. Now, who is everyone? Everyone. Christian, non-Christian. Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. What is Jesus doing? He's giving everyone in this community a litmus test to know if this church loves Jesus. Because if, they if you love Jesus, then it's going to be evident by how patient you are with each other. And here's the last and more important message. Some of you are looking at your watch. Here it is. You ready? You and I will never be patient by our own ability. You and I will never be patient because we choose to be. Paul writes in, in another letter, he says that the gift of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. It's a gift of the Spirit. But here, he is not talking about that gift that the Holy Spirit gives us to be patient. He's talking about the practice of patience. And let me tell you, you will not be patient with each other. You won't be patient with Logan. You won't be patient with the elders. You become impatient when you don't understand what's going on because you believe that you know exactly how the church should be run. And it upsets you and you begin to get, <laughs> you begin to get a little antsy. You begin to tell other people certain things that aren't exactly true. You begin to shade things in such a way that you begin to create a crisis. And it will create that moment where you have to decide, am I saying these things to build people up? Or am I just fearful of change? Love is patient. What do we mean by that? It means seeking God's time to do God's work and allow God to use you to help others. 
So what's going to happen over the next three months? Well, let me just tell you, this has not been easy for me. I, I'm feeling so vulnerable right now as a pastor. I, I love this church so much. I love each of you so much. I want the best for you. I want the best for this church. But the best for this church is not Robert Howard. It is Jesus Christ. And if I were to drop dead tomorrow, it would grieve me to think that some of you would say, well, I used to attend Center Church, but I just didn't like the color of the carpet anymore. It would mean that 30 years of my teaching was for naught. So when the time comes, and you begin to feel antsy. And you see things happening in the church that are part of the transition that we must have in order to be God's tools to reach people who don't know him in this community. Remember how patient God was with you before you ever knew him. Remember how God was patient when you would come back to him again and again and again and say, God, I am so sorry for this sin. Most importantly, remember that we are called to patiently wait on God for the right timing to take action for the welfare of others. My friends, this is why Cindy and I have come to the conviction it is time for us to step down. Because the welfare of you as a congregation is not tied to our being here. It is tied to how much you love Jesus. And you need time to see that, to experience it, to walk in it without me. Let's pray. Our gracious God and our Father, as we come into your presence, we do pray for patience, but we know the moment we say, God, I, I want to be patient, that you're going to give me plenty of opportunities to be patient. Because that's how you work. You work in such a way that we are left to a circumstance where we cannot, in our own power or strength, do what you command. And we know that this is a commandment. And so the only other recourse we have is to call upon the name of the Lord. To fall to our knees. And to ask you, O oh God, the Father of all things, to bestow upon this church the ability to love one another. And to sharpen, to enlarge to allow the fruit of patience to foster in a whole new day of ministry where many come to know Jesus Christ, not through just our words, but through our actions of love, even when we are patient with one another. Help us, Jesus, we pray. In the name of Christ our Lord and the people of God said together,